Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host today, James Leibold, Associate Professor in Politics at La Trobe University. And today we're here to discuss the emergence of the Uyghur nation and what it has to tell us about the fascinating history of the Eurasian region. The Uyghurs are a Turkic-speaking Muslim minority that predominantly inhabit the far western region of China known as Xinjiang. Joining me today uh, to discuss the Uyghurs is Dr. David Bropi, lecturer in history at the University of Sydney and the author of the new book Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier, which was just recently published by Harvard University Press. Thank you for joining me, David. Hi, Jim. Let's start general. I wonder if you could just tell the listeners a little bit of, uh, about the Uyghurs, who, who the Uyghurs are and why uh, they're significant both historically as well as in the contemporary politics of China and Eurasia. Well, there's a few ways to answer that. I'll, I'll start with the Uyghurs today. Most people would come across the Uyghurs as uh, one of the large so-called uh, ethnic minorities of China. So the Uyghurs inhabit this very vast territory known as Xinjiang to the north of Tibet, occupies about one-sixth of China's territory. And there are about between 10 to 11 million Uyghurs living uh, in that territory. Outside of Xinjiang, there's probably about half a million Uyghurs scattered throughout the, uh, the former Soviet Union, primarily republics of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan. And then now there's a worldwide Uyghur diaspora uh, as well, including a relatively large Uyghur population here in Australia. Now, historically, there have been moments in history where people identifying as Uyghurs have played important roles. Actually, not in Xinjiang, but in uh, what's now Mongolia. Uh, originally, the Uyghurs emerged as a people of the steppe, practicing a, a pastoral nomadic way of life. Then through a process of migrations, Uyghurs uh, eventually make their way down into sedentary regions of Central Asia. But gradually over time, particularly with the conversion to Islam in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, the Uyghur ethnonym loses its salience uh, in that context. It's not, not to say that it dies out completely, but people begin to identify more with a larger um, Muslim community. It's really only in the beginning of the 20th century that people seek to revive this, this ethnonym uh, as part of a new national project that emerges from the borderlands between you know, Russia uh, and China in the period of the Russian Revolution. That's really the story that my book uh, seeks to tell. Why your initial interest in the question of the Uyghurs and, and their origin? Well, I originally came to Xinjiang through a route that many people follow, I think, through, through Chinese studies, being drawn to part of China that um, seemed to open up Chinese history in a number of different directions. It's the point at which, you know, the Chinese world intersects with the, the Turkic and Islamic world, and more recently with the, you know, the Russian and, and Soviet world. And it's quite challenging to, to try and disentangle that. I first spent time there in um, year 2000, just very briefly, and then I went back there in 2003, four for, for a year of study. I'm mean, still working on my Chinese at that time, but I developed enough of an interest to try and study Uyghur. The more time I spent in, in Xinjiang, the more I, I felt that it was, it was very hard to understand the modern history of that region without having some sense of what had taken place uh, across the border in Russian territory. 
and the way people moving back and forth between these regions had had shaped that history. Yeah, it's a really, really fascinating time in history, I think. As you said, many possibilities mm. uh, that today have been foreclosed by the, mm. uh, the rise and prominence of the, the nation-state. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that uh, the term Uyghur uh, mm. is of modern origin. Mm. So what did people in the what is now called Xinjiang, how did they identify uh, themselves? What type of mm. ethonyms did they, did they use to describe themselves? My sense is that it would very much depend on who was asking the question. We don't have a lot of sources from this region where people really talk in the first person about how they feel about themselves and their identity. So what we have are sources produced in interactional contexts where people are communicating something to someone else and you know adopt a particular form of identification. Often this is simply belonging to a larger Muslim community. In the Qing period, you get a lot of interesting sources when people are just calling themselves locals. The word local seems to correspond quite closely to the term Muslim. And so teasing out what is a sort of territorially grounded term versus something that is confessional identity is, is quite complicated. You know, people identify according to native place. That's pretty common in, in Chinese history. And again, but that would depend very much on who was familiar with these places. Uh, when people went abroad, they often simply identified themselves as, as Kashgari, regardless of whether they were actually from Kashgar. So that's a term that you encounter a lot in the sources. Now, on top of that, you've had various forms of administrative regime applied to this territory that have created terminology that's been applied to people by, by outsiders. Uh, and sometimes those terms have stuck. There's a process by which peasants from the south are transported to the north. This actually begins under a Mongol ruling power, the, that of the, the Jungas, and they refer to these peasants using a Mongol word, taranchi. Over time, people who are part of this transportation process, mostly living in uh, the Ili Valley, the north of Xinjiang, they adopt this term taranchi for themselves. The Qing would either refer to these people simply as, as Muslim, as Hui. It's not uncommon to find people when they're appealing to the Qing authorities to refer to themselves uh, on those terms. If they wanted to distinguish the Turkic-speaking Muslims from the, um, the Chinese-speaking Muslims, the people today we talk about as Hui, they had another word, which was Chanto, which is today regarded as a derogatory term by Uyghurs. It, it means people who wear a turban on their head. But if you go into the historical sources, you can actually find people uh, happily adopting the term Chanto uh, as a way of identifying yeah, uh, themselves. Fascinating. So many, yeah. so many terms that have been yeah. bantied about and <laughs> makes one think that this concept of a Uyghur nation emerged in 20th century China is almost kind of like an accident of history. It could have been so many other terms. I mean, what, mm. what were some of the, the drivers behind the elites who decided to invest themselves in their state and nation-building mm. project in this term Uyghur? Yeah. Well, you're right. It's a very complicated question. The, Uyghur makes a comeback uh, in the late 19th century, not initially in Xinjiang, but in... Um, Circles of, of discussions among Turkic-speaking intellectuals in Anatolia, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, and also in Russia, where there's a, there's a broad interest at that time in uh, developing a, a new, more racialized sense of, of Turk uh, identity and 
a civilizational narrative that that attaches to that that you know harks back to a golden age of of the Turkic past. This is something that you know you see in a lot of different intellectual projects of this period. You know the construction of the you know the Ari and the Semites, whatever. And it just so happens that within this Turkic narrative, the history of the Uyghurs of the steppe plays an important role. Uh, it was the Uyghurs when they migrated down into what's now China who you know, first developed quite advanced written culture in the Turkic language. You know, for that reason, they were recruited into the armies of the Mongols as, as scribes, various technicians and reputation for literacy, so to speak. So it was understandable that Turkic nationalists of various stripes would, would take an interest in the Uyghurs. It then went in two different directions. On the one hand, you had people in Turkey who, who just fitted the Uyghurs into this story about you know, the Turks more broadly. The term Uyghur actually in Turkish came to mean any Turk who was civilized. Hmm. Um, and the term actually now in modern Turkish just means civilized. Hmm. Any sort of geographical or historical specificity has been lost. In the Russian case, people went in a slightly different direction because while they were very sympathetic to what was going on in, in the Ottoman Empire and in Istanbul, they felt that they had a role to play themselves fostering a new form of, of, of national politics inside Russia. Out of that emerged this idea of a sort of a Tatar, specifically Tatar national project that was connected to a larger Turkic family but had its own specificities. So that sort of became a template for people throughout the Russian Empire who, yes, identified with the, the wider Turkic family to some extent, but still, you know, were primarily interested in their own specific ethno-national project. And that context, it was, you know, the Uyghur legacy becomes available for people from Xinjiang who feel that they have a particular historical claim to that that mm. legacy. And we start to see that mm. around about the time of World War One, people actually from Xinjiang mm. laying claim to this, um, Which, to this heritage. The point you make in the book, the, the irony, of course, is this occurs under Chinese administration. It's through the patronage of Chinese rulers in Xinjiang in the 20th century and, and eventually the Chinese communists that this Uyghur national project, which started outside of Xinjiang mm. and Russia, then mm. takes root and becomes institutionalized. So there's a, there's a deep irony that, that is, I think, still significant today. It must have been extremely difficult to trace individuals across these archives due mm. to changes in the spelling of mm. names, different <laughs> languages involved. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure there are times that you're like, is this, this the same guy or is yeah. this someone else or <laughs> who are they talking about? And how, you know, I mean, the beauty of the book, I mean, it's got so many uh, strong qualities, but there's so many um, individuals that you've literally kind of exhumed from the historical mm. archives, mm. really colorful characters with really interesting lives and people that, that no one had ever written about that had essentially been lost um, from human memory. Um, I wonder if you could mm. tell us a little bit about one character, I don't know if we could take a central character or your, yeah, you know, sure. one of the more interesting characters and tell us a little bit about their background so we can get a feel for yeah. the individuals well, involved. You know, on either side of the border, there's really not much discussion of the, the people who went back and forth, who were active in the Soviet Union, but remained as Chinese citizens, partly because these people weren't really intellectuals. They weren't putting out newspapers, they weren't writing pamphlets, you know, these were people who were caravan traders going over and, and working in the bazaar and were quite vulnerable 
through the revolution. The one who interested me the most uh, in this respect was a guy called Qadir Haji, who's from a village just outside Kashgar. You know, as his name would suggest, he's a Haji. He's been on the Hajj with his father. He comes back to Russian territory in 1916. He sets up shop in the, um, the Almaty Bazaar. Through the revolution, he rises to a position of leadership within these Kashgari community. These are people who are, you know, they have Chinese passports, but they're stranded in Soviet territory because the borders closed. He comes to see himself as the natural leader of the um, Chinese citizens in, in Soviet territory and is as, as significant a figure as any of the other Russian-born Uyghur intellectuals that emerge, but there's a significant rivalry mm. between these groups. What's interesting about him is that he's, he's something of a survivor. There are various points at which there are crackdowns on cross-border activity. He manages to get through these periods despite having a lot of connections across the border and throughout Soviet Central Asia you know, to people who were being regarded pretty suspiciously by the party, you know, to religious figures uh, and so on. So he's, he's someone who kind of works in the margins rather than following Soviet orthodoxy. He's also interesting because he ties the book together quite well. He is actually someone who, in the late 1930s, when the Soviets intervene in Xinjiang, when a, a big rebellion breaks out, uh, eventually they back a new... Chinese warlord in Urumqi is named Sheng Shetai. But in the south, they have to shore up this new regime by sending a lot of Soviet-trained uh, mm. communists who are not Chinese, who are, you know, Uyghur, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, whatever. So he comes back to Kashgar mm. at this time and becomes the, the deputy chief of mm. police uh, in Kashgar, you know. So he's someone who crosses the border on the Hajj, mm. comes back, goes through the revolution, returns to mm. his hometown as a oh, Soviet-trained, you know, chief of police. Mm. And, and, of course, that makes him quite a controversial figure yeah. uh, as well. He has a fairly black name, yeah. actually, because of what he did. But I don't depict him in the book as the, the villain of the piece by any means. I just think that he, as an individual, embodies a lot of the contradictions that yeah. were inherent in this... Compromises people had to make. In this him. political project, yeah. 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 So, I mean, and what he, happens he, to him in the end? Well... As the case with most of the people uh, in this book, he's recalled to uh, Soviet territory in 1937, and I don't have any files to indicate what happened at that point. But this is the this is the Great Purge, and many of his ilk perished in, in the Great Purge. So, so my assumption is that he was recalled and and shot. Yeah, well. um, it you know wouldn't have been difficult to manufacture a case against him, yeah, well. Um, well. given his past associations. But um, that's a great example. That's where you um, know someone yeah. you've, as I said, literally exhumed mm. from the archives. Huh? Mm. I mean, mm. I'll end uh, with a final question about, I guess, the contemporary politics of Xinjiang. Mm. It's a highly sensitive area. You're dealing with a number of different nationalist agendas. You've got the Uyghur nationalist uh -huh. agenda, which you know has many strains, uh, represented partially by the World Uyghur Congress. Uh -huh. You've got now the rise of radical Islam inside uh, Xinjiang as well as throughout Central Asia. You've got the Chinese nationalist agenda, which, which seeks to increase mingling between the Han majority and the Uyghurs. I mean, this must have made it very difficult to try to write 
to be true to your historical sources and write a history, I guess, against a lot of these contemporary nationalist narratives? Uh, I mean, I, I can't say that... Um you know, I've negotiated all of the um, the potential pitfalls in writing this kind of history. I have to say that the situation has changed considerably over the last 10 years since I first began researching this project. I mean, 10 years ago, it seemed as if the national framework or the Minzul framework was still the primary basis for political contestation uh, in Xinjiang. But as you well know, and you've written uh, more about this th than I have, it's been challenged from both directions. I mean, on the one hand, you have Chinese theorists who are calling this into question, people who are quite critical of the whole Minzu concept as what they see as a sort of a barrier to integration. And that's reflected, on, on the other hand, by Uyghurs who may be you know, less interested in rallying around the symbols of Uyghur nationhood. They feel that that's an avenue that has, has reached a, a dead end mm. for them. You do start to notice a difference now between those more interested in um, you know, religious uh, approaches to politics and, and life in general, downplaying the significance of, uh, of Uyghur uh, national identity. So in that sense, you know, maybe if I wait another 10 years, I'd have to write this book in quite a different mm vain, you know, focusing much more mm. on on Islam mm. and on the um, currents of Islamic modernism that I touch on in the book, but are not by any means the center mm. of it. You know, I, the book is still largely grounded in the, the Xinjiang, Kashgar, Tashkent, yeah. Ili, Gulja axis. And that naturally leaves out certain stories that are also important to our understanding of, of what's going on in Xinjiang today. I mean, as for the, the larger question of how I situate myself in this particular conflict, you know, I, I think that there are elements of the book that both sides may uh, take issue with. It's just inevitable when you write a mm. book about a nationalist movement that you will call into question certain pillars of that movement. The position I come to at the end of the book is, is not to emphasize the you know, the distinctiveness of the Uyghur position or the, the Uyghur plight uh, or anything like that, but, but simply to ask, and this is, I suppose, directed more towards um, Chinese readers, perhaps, or readers in China, that, um, you know, the Uyghur case is really not very different from, you know, the broader challenge that confronted Chinese in the early 20th century. And they, you know, they went abroad looking for inspiration mm. from, from mm. various sources, whether it was from Japan or whether it was from the Soviet Union, and when you put these stories side by side, um, quite similar, a lot yeah. that they have in yeah. common. Yeah. Oh, what a great way to end. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today's podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my guest, uh, Dr. David Brophy of Sydney University. Here is your uh, souvenir Asia Rising mug. Uh, I hope it will uh, find a nice place on your mantelpiece. Uh, you can follow David on Twitter at Dave underscore Brophy or myself at uh, Jay Leibold. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. While you're there, leave a rating and review us and help spread the word. Thanks very much for listening.